I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. After an unprecedented summer of fire and smoke, communities around Australia are facing yet another emergency situation. Coronavirus, or COVID-19, is spreading around the world, with the World Health Organisation officially declaring it a pandemic. Although the risk to most people is minimal, countries, including Australia, are having to take significant steps to try and minimise its impact. These measures will have a big impact on early childhood services and the children and families they work with. This episode, we're going to try and provide as much facts and clarity as we can about the situation we're all facing. Uh, Given the current situation, we do want to say this episode is going out a little differently. Firstly, we want to start with a a disclaimer. This episode is being recorded at 8pm on Tuesday the 17th of March. The situation is changing very quickly, so please make sure after you have listened to this podcast, you check the updated information on the health department websites of the federal, state and territory governments. We will have links in the show notes for this episode. We are planning to edit and release this podcast as soon as possible after recording. We also want to be clear to listeners that all services should seek formal advice for any service decisions they make. Do not rely on three amateur podcasters. We will be sticking to sharing trusted sources tonight. Uh, listeners, do you like how there's actually people sneezing on the podcast on our coronavirus episode? That Lisa, it's the mute button, Lisa. This is not making us. This is not putting us in a good light. The mute button isn't working. Sorry, my technology isn't working. <laughs> now, because because I'm having to edit this tonight, everyone, I'm leaving this in because I don't have time to go back and do it. We will be sticking to sharing trusted sources tonight, but we are not coronavirus outbreak experts. Just to be clear. The Department of Education, Skills and Employment will have, a li- uh, will have a live webcast for providers and services on Thursday the 19th of March at 11.30am Eastern Standard Time, and we very much recommend that everyone tune in for that one. But let's start with a bit of an overview. So Leanne, what do we know as we record um, about the spread worldwide and in Australia? Well, the reason why I'm so knowledgeable about this is because I listen to Dr. Norman Swan every morning, who does a Corona cast, and I think he's a very reliable source. So um, I have this kind of broader knowledge, but in actual fact, I've got a beautiful list in front of me. So worldwide, we've got uh, 174,000 cases with 6,800 deaths. So that percentage of deaths to the number of cases is quite high, but there's a feeling that probably there are more cases than are known at this stage. 375 cases in Australia with 170 in New South Wales, although I believe that number has risen um, even since we put this piece of information together. So I think that there's over 200 cases. This was at 6am this morning. They haven't updated the figures yet. They haven't updated it. New South Wales is actually coming first in something, yeah? Yeah. Exactly. It's the percentage to the population is yeah, it is it, it isn't good. You would think, okay, we've got a bigger population in New South Wales, but that's not actually the, the case. But the um well it is the case, but the percentage of those cases is is higher. Twenty seven have recovered, five have um sadly died, and one hundred and eighty nine of those cases were acquired overseas. So of course we're seeing the community Um, transmission now, which I know Lisa is going to talk all about. Yeah. So, look, you know, it's spread in a few different ways, um, but primarily it's transmitted via large droplets, um, much the same as flu is. So what they mean by large droplets is it's not an airborne virus. It's when someone coughs or sneezes and there's large droplets coming out. The virus can survive when those droplets land on surfaces surfaces for up to a week. And what happens is people then touch those surfaces, then they touch their mouth or nose, and that's how it goes in. We've never realised how much we touch our faces except over the last few weeks, have we? Three times a day or something. That's terrible. That's a minimum. Mm. Yeah. And so that's why we're being told to wash our hands so that we don't, you know, a lot, so we don't transfer those droplets to our nose and mouth. And that's why we're being told to clean surfaces really well. 
There is the possibility that there's also what's called a faecal-oral route of transmission, which as people that change nappies you know, sometimes, um, we all know about that and that's why we have that really good infection control. So it basically means getting faeces on um, on your uh you know, on someone's hands and then it going into somebody else's, um, you know, mouth. So, um, yeah, that happens. Um, uh, the other thing that's important about how people get it is that, that it's possible that um, there can be what's called asymptomatic transmission. So someone without any symptoms of the disease could be transmitting it to other people i've i've heard mixed thinking on that or yeah it's a bit i mean i just i don't look, want to i don't want to attack our own information here, but, <laughs> no, but in the all. spirit of the podcast um that 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 is that that's not actually accurate um, yeah, look, I think that the problem with all information about this is that they, they're not exactly sure at the moment. Um, and to be honest, I can't say 100% where I got that from t today, but it was one of the Australian government websites and they're not ruling it out mm. as yet. So, you know, um, uh, yeah, look, we don't know. But, you know, the fact that there's, um, you know, uh, how many cases was it that they don't know where they've come from in Australia? That's not actually on our show notes. But, um, you know, there's something like um, 18 cases they can't work out where they've gotten it from. Yeah. So they're the ones that it possibly could be from that asymptomatic yeah. transmission. Yeah, right. Yes. Wonderful. Well, thanks for that overview info, Lisa and Leanne. I think the only thing um, I want to sort of add here is we we take this overview look before sort of diving into the the sector itself. Is I think this is just acknowledging this is a really for different people will react to sort of what's happening at different times. Like even in the at, in different ways. Sorry, I should say. So even in the organisation I I work for, there's there's a range of people who are not worried at all and kind of think oh it's a bit of a flu and you know every, it's a bit of an overreaction and everyone will get over it. To people who are quite overwhelmed and to people who are um, quite worried. You know even just the images we're seeing on social media of empty shelves and those kind of things. It is a really different situation that Australia is um, is in. Uh, the only thing I'd say is, you know, in terms of all the advice we're getting, is that it's obviously it is it is a serious public health risk, uh, but the it will only it's it but the only a minority of people will be really dramatically affected by it. So in terms of the the all all the risk minimization measures we're hearing about are more about stopping the spread of the illness so it doesn't reach people who are particularly vulnerable. Uh, so. I think that's something I've sort of been reminding you know both myself and and, and people a lot that one that we kind of see this big panic and we think it's because everyone's you know liable to become infected and and become really really sick. Uh, that's not necessarily the case, but it's more that we want to reduce the spread as much as possible so that those who are particularly vulnerable um, don't become infected and and particularly ill. Yeah, and it's a it is a big deal. Like I think that that's I know you sort of not we're not trying to be alarmist, but it is a big deal, but there are many things that can be done to reduce the spread of it, which I know we will talk about in terms of the early childhood services. But it is, you know, it is significant. Yeah, <laughs> and, those, and it's and there's still some people who are saying, "Oh, look, it's no more than just a cold," you know, and that's not true. It's got a higher, you know, for the number of people who will get it, it's got a higher death rate. Yeah, that's right. So tell that pe to the people who uh, have passed away. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, sure. let's let's segue in, I think, to talking about the early education sector uh, specifically. So I guess I might throw this question open, but, um, you know, what specifically have we seen as being impacts in early education services and in the sector more broadly so far? Oh, is, are these, is this from our observations and interactions with services, Liam? Is this what you're um, you're wanting uh, us to respond to here? I think so. Just things we're seeing in the media and things we're seeing from our own engagement with um, the people, you know, the fabulous peeps we know out there in the sector. Yeah, well, one thing I think that we're definitely seeing is a real challenge to, you know, what, what 
do we actually do? So there's a real sort of complexity around um, the, the the concern and the, the lack of, um, I suppose, any kind of plan in place for something as major as this. So then, of course, there are the things that go on from there, which are, are some of the, the um, practices that people will take up. Um, for example, some centres will close uh, or have closed. Well, well, yeah, there has already been some centres. I think we're up to about six or seven that have had to close, whether for 24 hours or for a bit longer across Australia because um, somebody, you know, closely, like somebody working in the centre had actually contracted the virus. So those centres have closed. But I think, you know, one of the the biggest things that I've seen people worried about, or the two things that I've seen people most worried about. Of course. Yep. Of course. Lynn promised me in this episode I could have two things, so I'm going to hmm. talk about those two things. <laughs> one, one is the um, fears about occupancy. So hmm. services are reporting, especially our preschools, I think, uh, across the country, are reporting that, you know, um, a class of 20 might have gone down to a class of 10. I don't think our long daycare centres are seeing quite the same impact, but some people are definitely choosing to have their children at home and um, to not take them to the centre. So services, you know, are worried about what they do, um, you know, with low occupancy numbers. Um, and the other one is... Do you mean, sorry, Lisa, do you mean in the context of then their staffing? Is that what you mean when no, you're saying I mean what in, they do? No, I mean in or? the context of, of just, you know, not having enough income coming in because some of those parents that are pulling their children out are also saying we don't want to pay for this time. We can't bring our children, so we're not going to come. We're not going to pay. And so they're worried about, you know, um, the impact of that on their capacity to pay their staff. And that's right. the other issue. That's my second issue is that staff are worried about if my service is to close, if all services are being told to close or if my service has to close, what leave will I be paid for? Will I have to take it from my you know, current entitlements or will it be a top-up? Mm -hmm. And what will happen if we're closed for a long term? Yeah, and so the the my interaction with services is that they're attempting where wherever this is, you know, they're ensuring that casual people who are casuals are, are still paid and that they can manage their people around some of these things. For example, are people going to take holidays or whatever. Now, I know we're going to talk more about what services can do a bit later, but um, in terms of the staffing, that's some of the things that I've seen. Absolutely. That's Thanks. good. Yeah. Yep. Um, the other, the other, some of the other things I'd, you know, say from that we're definitely seeing from the sector and within our own organisation as well is uh, the there's sort of I think a short term and a sort of a longer term issue around the, the sort of centre closure is this big sort of thing um, or widespread centre closures is this big kind of looming thing that. Uh, is off in the distance, but we are seeing, as you sort of mentioned there, Lisa, already families are already choosing to to withdraw children and and keep them at home, which is having an impact uh, already. Uh, and also, just I think what this has really highlighted is the challenge we operate. So even as a not for profit community based service, this kind of sense that families have that they're paying for a service becomes really tricky when families are maybe choosing to self isolate or choosing to keep their children at home and sort of asking, well, did, you know, we shouldn't really have to pay for the service because our children aren't there. I think it's really, for me, highlighted the challenges with the market-based model we work in. Yeah, definitely. And I think that it's important that that people think that they're, like, I think people are thinking what, you know, I've got all these issues and all these challenges and I should be able to find an answer to it. But in actual fact, these are unprecedented times for everybody, so nobody knows the answers to it. And it's, I guess I'm sort of addressing those feelings that people have internally about what are we supposed to do? What we'll, Eventually we'll talk about that. But it's that feeling that you don't know what to do. Everybody is feeling that. So I guess I'm just saying do not feel incompetent under these circumstances because these For are sure. such complex times 
and these are un- these things are unprecedented. You know, if our governments weren't ready for it, and if people who are who are supposed to know how to do this stuff weren't ready for it, then how can anybody else be ready for it? Absolutely, really good point. And I think that within that context, what happens is that when there is no definitive information. It provides a really ripe environment for fear and misinformation mm. to spring mm. up. So I'm seeing the most horrible inf- misinformation being shared on social media. Oh, really? It's, yeah, just really, you know. That's why I'm not on social media. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, you're on Twitter. <laughs> oh, yes. But only um, as an interloper, yes. <laughs> yeah, and, um, you know, and I think that, some parts of the education and care sector are becoming really freaked by what they're reading when it might not even necessarily be true. The other, um, a few more things that I've noticed is happening is that some services are having real difficulty buying their basic supplies of food, um, of nappies, toilet paper, yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things that I heard that was helping people is, um, especially those that get deliveries by the major supermarkets, is if they tell those supermarkets that they're actually a childcare service and that, uh, sorry, I just said childcare service, didn't I? I don't know where that came from. If okay, they're in tell... difficult times, Lisa. Go on. <laughs> well, actually, when you're talking to Woolies or Coles, probably childcare service is the right word to yeah. use. Yeah. Um, uh, then they'll prioritise you because they understand that it's really important. Oh, aid that you remain open. That's great to hear. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah, it is. And the other the final thing that I've heard is a lot of uncertainty about what to do, when to exclude children. Uh, um, not so much children that are routinely sick, although even that is happening, but what to do with parents that are travelling, um, you know, and or whose family, you know, father might have gone overseas and is in isolation. Should people allow that child or not? No. And well, it's not as clear cut as that, you know. And often it's coming down to an ethical sort of a thing rather than a definitive answer. What's more important that that child has a normal routine? If, you know, there's no, like the Australian government isn't saying that that child can't come to your service. The Australian government's saying the parent that travelled overseas has to self-isolate within the home and can't have contact with anyone else in their home. Whether or not you think that's a likely thing for a parent to do or a reasonable thing is a different matter, but there should be no reason why if a parent is doing that, the child can't come. In fact, there's been updated information out from the Department of Health this afternoon that explains that if anyone else in the house gets, you know, gets sick at all, then they have to enter the isolation as well. I think this is a good reminder really to be looking at those official sites for information and where families are presenting with particular questions about particular cases and encouraging them to get that formal advice and provide it to you um, is the best advice I can give That's your best friend, isn't it, really? That's your best friend. Look, it is. But, you know, some of these, like, you know, I've been on the internet for hours and hours and hours, you know, and some of these sites have got the wrong thing on them. Like the the New South Wales Minister for Education tweeted a link to her site that had information that was about 24 hours out of date about um, the travellers coming in from overseas. If a Minister for Education can do that, then you can't always trust what you read online. On some government websites, there's incorrect information because they haven't taken down the old fact sheet. So it's not just a matter of going to the official sites. It's going to the official sites, making absolutely certain that what you are reading is dated within the last 24, 12 hours. Yeah, true. true. And looking really hard to find it. We've... Um, 
we're putting into the show notes a definitive list of sites to go for and the parts of the sites to go for. Because, like, if you go to New South Wales Health, it's got a whole infectious diseases section that doesn't have coronavirus in it. Yeah, they've got their coronavirus thing splashing on the front page. But yeah, if you but just they went to your normal it. pages, yeah, you true. wouldn't do it. And true. I'm not I'm not necessarily judging uh government departments for not being able to keep their websites up to date. I am judging a minister for sending out the wrong information or not checking that the website was up to date before yeah. she tweeted it. But, you know, things are changing so fast that they can't always get everything up to date. But it's on you to check that it is. But if you're a director that's only, you know, got a few hours off the floor a week or something, you're going to be hard-pressed to find the right information. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be careful not to go off script, but that is not the nature of this podcast, right? Um, so... <laughs> I, it's really interesting because I work in a university now, which is great joy to me. And Congratulations. I that, yeah, thank you. And Does that mean the, you become, you're a boring academic or something? No, I've got a different role to that, but I love academics, so don't call them boring. Anyway, um, <laughs> the, the, the point about this is that the universities have been on top of the information because it's really affected their business model. So each day there is some sort of update about the coronavirus and I think that they're just all and I, I get information from lots of different unis for various reasons and it's all the same information and I think that it's very accurate but it's interesting because I think it's affected their they've been on top of it for quite some time because it has affected the overseas students um, coming in so I just I think that's just an interesting note that that's a really great source of information so if anybody's attached to a university pass it on <laughs> Good to know. Cool. Well, and so, I, I don't, think, say, I don't sure. think all academics are boring. Some of them are wonderful people. When my son got stranded um, in a European country last week, um, an, an academic that I only know through the early education care sector offered to put him up if he was desperate. Yeah, right. Press. How yeah, lovely is that? Special people. Well, speeding us along, because I know we've got a lot to cover in hopefully an hour <laughs> Sorry, or less. Uh, we, What can we... So, Lisa, what, what has the government announced so far about support for the sector? And I think just before <laughs> just before I let you answer that, Lisa, I think in this point particular is where we just want to reiterate. So we're recording this on Tuesday night because this in particular, the, the, the amount of support that may change, I think, by the time people listen to this. But this is what we know as of sort of Tuesday night this week. I just want to point out one of the first things um, uh, uh, or something that I found really interesting first. The, Australia's got a thing called the Health Sector Emergency Response Plan for Novel Coronavirus 2019 Final, which is kind of like their rule book. It's the rule book of all the states and territories and the Commonwealth Government about what they're doing. You don't need to read it. It's boring, right? But I went in and I read it all and searched for child in it. No, child doesn't appear anywhere. So I thought, okay, let's think a bit wider. Babies, you know, nah. The word infants does. It appears in it in Australia's response for to the virus three times. And all it says about them is they're likely to be a high-risk group and a high-risk as a vector of the disease, meaning that, you know, they'll give it to other people. So coordination with childcare facilities is also important. And I just went, geez, you know, so that's all they've, you know, when they've sat there and done their risk analysis, that's all they've thought about about children is, oh, they could infect the rest of the world and, oh, yeah, some of them, you know, like they'll probably all catch it too and we've got to take care of them, you know. But they didn't think about anything about the services that mind these infants or anything like that. So... Essentially, the government hasn't announced much. Some of the states and territories have announced um, uh, state and territory support packages. Queensland's looked quite good as if there might be some money in there for early education and care services. New South Wales services will be able to get a payroll tax exemption. 
The Western Australian one looked a bit good. I can't quite remember what was in that. But have a look at your state and territory. Um, uh, They're called economic stimulus packages to see what they're saying. Um, uh, And the other thing that the federal government has announced is that um, through the Special Circumstances Fund Childcare, what's that fund called? Someone, Liam? Childcare, community, community childcare child fund. fund. Yeah, um, that there would be money available for services as they need it. Um, they said there's fourteen million dollars in the fund. Um, yeah, so um, uh, the as someone's pointed out, though that fund normally has a condition on it that it's only services in isolated areas where there isn't um, enough childcare. Sorry, enough education and care services, you know, that can access that fund. It's possible that what we'll find out tomorrow in the is it tomorrow or Thursday? It's Thursday, Thursday. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, that we'll find out more from that um, then. But at the moment, that's kind of more or less all that we've heard. Um, the the minister did say on ABC TV tonight that, um, uh, you know, that uh, they're aware of the issues and that they'll be, you know, um, announcing something or, you know, uh, in upcoming days. The, uh, all, you know, a lot of the, major organisations in the education care sector have been working quite, have been meeting quite a lot with the government to try and get both state and territory and and the federal government to understand the precariousness of education care services um, positions and the need for economic support for them or funding support for them and also to talk to them about um, you know, like the precariousness of educators' wages, casual wages, etc. Thanks for that, Lisa. Um, one of the things I just saw, a couple of things I'd point out, just as someone who works uh, for an approved provider providing services, the Special Circumstances Fund, from what we can see of it at the moment, is clearly manifestly not going to be adequate to cover the sector. I think there's a, a total cap of $10,000 for the initial application. There's, a, there's some lines in there that talk about additional applications can be made for more than that. Um, anyone who works you know, in an operational capacity in services knows that 10 k doesn't actually go that far. <laughs> Um, we know we had a look at that in our organisation, and it would, you know, barely cover, you know, a day. Um, it wouldn't even cover, sorry, a day of all our services being closed. What I would suggest to anyone, in particular who's in a leadership role in an organisation, is to look at the guidelines and begin preparing some of the things. We're going to have a section later on about what can services do, and I might flesh this out later. But there is some, there's some guidelines uh, as part of the Special Circumstances Fund about the kind of things that services would need to provide to access some of that money, and it's mainly around, you know, a budget and you know how much particularly wages cost. So preparing that information now is kind of is a great way to start. Liam, I'm really sorry. I forgot one thing, um, which is the cash flow assistance um, for businesses, um, uh, which, uh, you know, services are eligible for. So what um, in the, the, in the nationwide economic stimulus package, the um, the Prime Minister announced that there'd be support for businesses, and what that means is that they'll provide up to twenty five thousand back to business with a minimum payment of two thousand for eligible businesses. And how you apply for that is you don't have to do a thing. Basically, what they're doing is giving you fifty percent of what you would normally submit to them for your pay-as-you-go tax, they will give back to you. We'll have um, a link up until that that 25,000 cap. Um, We'll put a a link to that into the show notes, but that's something that even not-for-profit services can apply for. Fantastic. 
yeah, good, very good to know. But I think, yeah, and it's great to hear that the um, some of the leading organisations in the sector are, are having those discussions with the minister because it is very clear that um, you know that they're not going to be enough to tide services over if there's sort of enforced closures. But maybe that might be a good segue to start thinking about uh, with the remaining time we have, where we're probably going to get into a bit more of speculation. So I do kind of want to put a bit of a dividing line between what we've talked about before, and we'll include lots of links to what we've uh, to all, all we've talked about. Um, if you're listening to this podcast really soon after it's up, I'm really hopeful that that'll be tonight. Uh, the website may not be quite updated yet, but we'll make sure that's updated tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, with all of the links. But I want to start talking about what what may be the impact in the near future for the sector um, and it's going to be I think probably it might be challenging to remain on one side of being balanced and not too uh, panic driven but we, we it is what we can tell from how other countries have responded and are responding is that there's likely to be a pretty big impact on the entire community including the early childhood sector um, so I, I think we want to open the discussion you know and what might be the impact in the near future for the sector and one of the things that we're seeing is coming through pretty clearly is that it may be likely that uh, early childhood services, along with schools, uh, you know, may be sort of closed en masse uh, for a period of time. Uh, and obviously that's unprecedented. So we haven't seen that in, you know, in the history of, um, you know, of how we've sort of had to respond to these kind of events previously. And this will be a real test, I think, for the sector and the government and how the model for early education in Australia Works. So one of the things that was kind of fascinating about the Special Circumstances Fund we saw was they were really clear and they, they, they sort of made sure this was in one of the earliest paragraphs is that if the service is closed and unable to provide uh, you know, sessions of early education, as they refer to them, then they are uh, they are unable from the legislation. They are unable under the law to charge for that service. So how we, you know, the the, the conversations will become, I think, quite complicated around how we ensure services remain viable mm-hmm. if services, you know, with um, very you know narrow margins, particularly around staffing, um, ensuring the services can reopen after any closure will be will become a very yeah. Big talking which is point. back to your point, Liam, about make sure that you look very carefully at all of the um, all of the information and read it very, very carefully because if you're thinking that you can access that new, if you close, then that's going to be a problem. Yeah, absolutely. What I would say, so it, it's interesting. So we're obviously, um, so I work for an organisation that has five early childhood centres. We are having these discussions on a daily basis around business continuity and what this would mean. I my feeling is that this is, this is a really difficult and challenging thing to discuss. It, it's unprecedented. It seems like this huge over for, for many people. It, it either feels like an overreaction or it feels like a very overwhelming thing to think about. The idea that because of an illness that's sort of you know around in our community, we actually have to close early education services and schools. I think that has a real visceral impact on me. Think about it. Um, how I'm thinking about it, how I would encourage listeners who are worried or nervous or stressed, um, is that you know that that it is a response to ensure that you know we are protecting the vulnerable members of our community, and also that you know for all that we have spent, you know, the history of this podcast has been advocacy around what we think of the challenges around particularly conservative governments and how they treat early education. I do think it's unlikely that the 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 sector will just kind of be left on its own to just to cease to function. I do think that. One of the unexpected, you know, positives of what what's what's likely to happen over the next little while is that many in the government may actually kind of have a bit of a, maybe a bit, you know, struck in the head about actually how important this sector is, and may be quite surprised about the flow-on impacts if services, you know, aren't supported. And I think we're likely to see. It may not be everything we want. I'm very, I, I, I seriously doubt it's going to be, you know, a response that will make me 100% happy. But I think we are likely to see you know, support for the sector if there are forced closures by government. Am I being too optimistic there, Lisa? <sighs> I'd like to bother asking me that, Liam, because I would agree with you. But <laughs> <laughs> look, I, d- I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of businesses hurting. Why are, child- why are education and care services any different than the other businesses that are hurting? Because as we know, if those businesses don't go on, whether they're not for profit or whether they're for profit, there's a lot of other people who can't go to work. So 
this might be where we can extrapolate out all the evidence that, you know, even though we don't love to say it's If about we get to the stage where we're all locked down as a country, as some of the European countries are, they don't care about people going to work. No, I'm talking about in the future. So if, if organisations don't survive in the future, then we've lost that opportunity for people to continue working. And that creates, you know, that that's sort of the domino effect within the community. I know we're not talking about immediately right now. People won't be going to work. But what I'm talking about is business continuity. I suppose I'd love <laughs> Yeah, I, Leanne, I hear where you're I coming from. I'd love, I'd love it if our government has thought that far ahead and... Well, I think that they'll have to eventually. They'll have to because how are people going to go to work without um, without childcare? We're talking about childcare now, whether it's childcare for under fives or outside school hours care. And it's a fundamental part of our our community and our society now. It, there has to be continuity for this sector. Um, that's not just being optimistic. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> of course not. Wow. It's we can never be too accused that of doing that. You guys that. hear me say something and don't say anything. So I don't think I'm No, I think no, I I'm 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 with you, Leanne. I think the response will be it may not like I said, it may not be exactly everything we want, but I think it will be a wake up call for a for a for a lot of people, particularly in the political class, who just haven't had to think about the importance of this particular sector in this particular way. And I think what I'm hoping for is that it might particularly get people to wake up to the importance of how important yeah. educators are yep. to this workforce. Um, because, you know, one of the other things that, you know, what if we're asking the question, what could be the impact in the near future for the sector is, you know, we're going to be seeing, you know, educators are the same as everyone else are likely to be coming unwell. Um, how we manage their, you know, illnesses when they are, you know, providing this really important Oh, work that's for okay. The Some of the privates think... are already lobbying for the relaxing of race. She is. Oh. So, I know, Lisa, look, that we're going to have to make a whole other podcast on that because I'm very but, aware of um, time. But Liam, that, I'm we, just wondering yes, from your perspective, yeah. because you're in the, the business of delivery, like, and and if and I, I'm thinking from a putting on a, the hat of someone who might be, you know, leading services, don't you think that it's all about that scenario planning and for people to be all across, okay, this, what if this lasts till June? What if this lasts till till um, September. What happens towards the end of the year? Because we're going to have impacts on us for if it depends on the action, I suppose, of, of government and what they decide we will do. So, as an example, Singapore have, got very heavy with their restrictions around things. They never closed their schools or their childcare centres, but they did a lot of stuff to um, stop the spread of the the virus very different society in Singapore, but thinking about, okay, let's look at what government will do if we do close these services. What does that mean for us? Because then if people are really informed, I know the big providers will be doing all of this, but everybody should be doing this so that they can provide that information to government yeah, when, sure. when they need, when, when, when it's saying, look, what is it that government needs to do to make sure these services have continuity that we've got the responses to those for every service. And we have one big, look, I'll just very quickly touch on this, Liam, but we have one big continuity problem. Our largest corporate listed child care, uh, education care provider, GA, has lost 50 cent, 50% of its value in the stock market in the last week, in the last month, 50% in a month. It's down to $86 a share. Now, at its height now, a few years ago, it was up to 380 or something a share. So there's a possibility that a corporate is going to go under. Well, that won't, yeah. that won't happen. <laughs> as if, that, yeah. as if there wasn't right. enough happening. And I, I would say, no, I'm not going to say that, but anyway. No, I think to come back to uh, your point, Leanne. I think it's a it's a it's a great point. I think that there is a limit to what preparation services can do, but there is still preparation that services can do. I think one of the challenges is 
uh, because of the model of the sector, everyone's so different. So I think the planning for you know a standalone service will be different mm-hmm. from you know a small provider like the one I work for. You know, then different from a medium-sized one to you know a behemoth like Goodstart. The 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 challenges will be similar, but I think quite quite different. One of the things that I've been thinking about because I think this has kind of happened. Well, I guess you know we we spend another hour arguing over do we do we see this coming? Should we be more prepared? But let's let's accept the fact it happened relatively quickly in the scheme of things. So the the opportunity for people to be too prepared was pretty small. But if we think about you know the bushfires over summer that involved many services, including the ones I work with, closing this system, what what we will see coming out of this uh, is the need for better overall planning, but also mm. budgeting. So, you know, one of the first things I'll be thinking about with the government is going, well, so your hourly fee cap, we will have to fairly dramatically potentially increase fees to ensure that we have a better, you know, buffer in the event we have to close for a particular period of time. We will have to have far stronger infection control uh, processes. We will need, uh, you know, particular things around ensuring the health and safety of children during poor air quality and smoke. So there's going to be a have to be discussion with the government around how services are currently budgeting and planning for this is not adequate. And the only way at the moment under the current system we have is to pass mm. that cost on to families. So how whether we look at, you know, special funds or, you know, around that kind of thing, I, I, I don't know. But I want to move on because I'm, I'm, I'm really aware we're pressed for time and there's a lot more we kind of want to, want to get into. I do want to spend a bit of time and maybe, maybe what we might do is just list one thing each here we can really quickly do. I think... Th- with this podcast, we always want to bring this back to young children. So that's why the early education sector exists. It's really, and we've done this in this podcast, because I think we've had to, but it, it's very easy to get bogged down in the economic rationale for early education and, and workforce um, stuff. But, you know, the sector fundamentally is there for children's education. I think we want to just ask quickly, you know, what, what does this all mean actually for young children at the moment? What are we seeing in terms of impacts for young children? I don't know if we just want to really quickly go around the virtual table we, um, we were joking before and we said we had to get this joke into the podcast is that this podcast has been practicing social distancing for four years now. We, re- we record this in separate cities, people. We, 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 we're well prepared for this. But, you know, Leanne, maybe starting with you, what, what you know, if you think about what this means for children, what, what do you kind of, what comes um, into in mind? In terms of uh, how we, sorry, are you talking about what the impact is on children in terms of their emotional landscape or are you talking about what we need to do in order to um, ensure that they're safe? Ah, Anything you like, Leanne, what's the first thing that occurs to you? I think that for me it's always that emotional stuff about what they're hearing around them and, and what they need to be reassured of. And I think that there are lots of great resources which we'll put in the um into the um, show notes, which are around, uh, you know, what, oh, there's one by Anne Stonehouse and Jim Greenman about when the world uh, changes and it's really difficult to understand what's happening. And I think Norway's done some sort of um, presentation just for children to reassure them and let them know that their feelings are are um, okay. So, the Prime Minister oh, of Norway did a press conference for children. Yeah. How amazing yeah, so is that? That's incredible. So, I think it's the emotional um, landscape, apart from the physical, because I think the physical is much more easy. You know, it's much easier to manage, and I'll let somebody else talk about that um, uh, to not take up all the time. But I, I guess it's the really thinking. This is where um, early childhood educators are absolutely amazing around their understanding of children's emotions and how we need to think about the empathy around that and and what. We're sharing with families as well, and guiding families around this is really important. So that's what I'd say. Wonderful. Look, what one about of you, the Lisa? things that um, I think we've got a plan for is if our <laughs> services do close, what can we as services, what what skills, what attributes, what opportunities are there for educators? and for services to still engage with children. And this came to mind because someone emailed me today and said, you know, like, um, please, what can I, um, you know, what can I do? What uh, professional development can our staff do if we're forced to close down? Give me some recommendations. And I said, look, you know, you could do this, but I also think that it's really important that services work out ways to still engage with children Mm. and whether that could be doing things like, you know, 
preparing a, a you know a video of you talking on your iPhone and then emailing that to all the parents of the children in your room um, mm. for them to show the children you know or doing something you know more educative like you know do a science experiment and videotape it and send that to them just so they can hear your voice mm. and see that you still exist so that there's still some level of continuity i think um you know they uh, that that the idea of setting up services for emergency workers for those for health workers etc and i would hope that you know if particular services close then maybe those educators would volunteer to, you know, work in services that are working with um, uh, with health workers' children, you know. The, I think that we have to, if it gets to the stage where our schools and our education and care services are closed down, we can't just go, okay, we'll self-isolate and have a nice little um, pity party at home. You know, we've mm. got to work out... What can we do from home mm. that will still and, impact yeah. children positively? I, I totally agree with you on that, Lisa. And um, I will say that uh, although the opinions I express here have nothing to do with my employer, I will say that um, watch the space in Early Start in Wollongong because there's going to be some of that available for people. So I'll, I'll send that out if um, I think by the end of the week we'll have some really good stuff around that. Although we do need to remember, that's sorry, that's great, Leanne. We do need to remember that not everyone's family will have access to internet. Yeah, that's not right. everyone has internet in their homes, and yep. there's got to be other ways that services in you know that educators and services in areas without internet can continue to interact with yep. those children, whether it's you know a postcode or a postcard or yeah, whatever, there's got to be wise. Great point. Mm. Wonderful. Yeah, look, I'm not going to add it. I think there's a, those are really fantastic points. You know, the only thing at the risk of blowing this podcast out, which is which now I'm in trouble for if we go over, there's this part of me that kind of imagines this kind of the one of the best things that maybe had to happen is let's assume you know, Scott Morrison is hit on the head and wakes up and decides, you know, every service needs to be funded, you know, to, to continue exactly as every educator will be paid. It's part of me, you know, given what earlier childhood educators go through for this country, you know, every single day, working all the year round, you know, scrabbling for leave, dealing with all that kind of stuff, kind of how amazing would that be if everyone got paid and educators could just have a few weeks or even longer off and just have a big break as a sector. I feel like we didn't get that over December and January because it was so crazy and difficult. Part of me goes, you know, if there's any group of, you know, people uh, that that would could that if they just had a funded holiday, uh, that that actually sounds quite lovely <laughs> to me. I hope they do it. And here am I, who's not a teacher <laughs> and educator, giving you more work to do. <laughs> How can we make the just just remember it was all well, Lisa's think, idea? Everyone. No, but before we start right. that sort of conversation, I think that yeah, yeah. yes, I agree with you, Liam. But I do think Lisa's point is <laughs> is this a way that we can also yes, like be very productive with time and be very you know positive about how that time is used. So I'm I'm and what we what well, yeah what we also know about educators one of the reasons they are amazing is that they will not be sitting at yeah. home not thinking about yeah. the children they work with all all day every day and, and you know will probably be the first people you know a leaping onto what sounds like a really amazing resource Leanne but, you know coming up with their own ways of doing stuff as well um, you know we know because that's how amazing they are um, let's keep <laughs> barreling on though because we've got a, we've got a bit more to do that the next section is probably pretty important so I guess and again you know we're we're beyond the realm of you know the facts about where we are now with we're sort of Providing some, you know, some some speculation about how can services prepare, and what should they be doing. What we should say here is we've had some really. Um, we asked a friend of the podcast, Carl, who's been on before uh, on the podcast to to join us. He couldn't make it unfortunately, but he did send us quite a lengthy <laughs> list. He, Carl, in particular, is very. Um, very worried that the, the sector and the community at large aren't sort of prepared for, for service closures and aren't prepared and, and understanding the reason why that's important. So I want to just go through a couple of his quick points. He's literally sent us like two pages, so I'm going to have to apologise, Carl, in advance. We're not going to get through all your points. But what he's asking that is that, you know, the... important, Carl. <laughs> 
Well, I'm going to have to summarize as well. I did tell Carl I was working on my Carl impression throughout the day, but it hasn't gone that well. So I'm just going to have to go through um, the next. So his points are that he really thinks in terms of for, for a public health measure, and he's given me permission to say that his his uh, his wonderful partner is uh, works in the medical profession. So they've had lots of um, very specific discussions around this. So um, he said it's important that the sector and the community at large accepts that the best thing for public health is that services uh, alongside schools close, um, that, 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 they, that they close to ensure to minimise uh, you know, social contact and the, and the spread of the illness. Um, second, that the sector must be continued to support it, to pay wages and rent to ensure that services can actually continue to operate when that period of closure ends and that the government needs to accept that it basically was just going to have to cover service um, expenses for, 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 a, for a period of time. And the period um, of time he believes he... we're talking about is six to 12 weeks. Yeah. And I think in the interest of not um, because we're because this is getting into the realms of projections and sort of some scary figures. I don't want to go into detail on these, but people will see them. Look, I, I would you know rely on, on news services like the ABC and not much else. But they're talking about you know projections around likely numbers of cases um, given the number we have, and they're they're quite shocking. We're looking at you know a large number of cases in pretty the near future based on what we're seeing in other countries and how many cases Australia has now. Is that we're likely to see, and maybe in the not too distant future, we may be only talking days or weeks here that. You know, this this is becoming something that needs to happen. So there's kind of a message for the sector is, which is, I guess, you know, emotionally and 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 mentally begin to prepare for this idea that will happen, and for the government that they're, you know, this, this is something that the sector is going to have to be supported through, and that sector may need to be really getting into advocacy around demonstrating the importance of. Uh, why this service needs to be, you know, funded to continue, and the importance of the sector being there when when this is all over, that we can continue to have, you know, children uh, accessing early childhood services. Absolutely. Chris sneezes with that. Is that. Lisa's getting tested. Lisa's getting tested for COVID after <laughs> this not, podcast. Everyone, everyone that listens to this podcast knows that when I talk, I cough. I just have four years and we haven't learned the mute button, Lisa. It's really not working on my microphone. <laughs> <laughs> so I think in terms of um, what services need to be doing, you know, or preparing or what they should be doing now, uh, you know, is social, people are talking a lot about this concept of social distancing, which is the idea that the less time people just interact with each other in groups, um, that we will see less of a spread of the illness. So we're really talking about where children are unwell, that we're really encouraging and talking to families about those children not attending. Obviously, hand washing, really importantly, as you talked about before, cleaning and washing surfaces um, and, and making sure uh, services are well ventilated and we're being outdoors. The other thing, you know, I might, before I maybe turn it over to, to Lisa and Leanne to go through a couple of other points, the, I, I, I hesitate to be in the realm of giving advice. One of the things we've been working on over the last little while as a service is being really clear with our communication with families, trying to avoid jargon and also being honest. So we, we actually emailed families today being quite honest about the need to continue to charge fees even when families are, are choosing to stay at home um, and why that's important, that we need to continue paying staff, that we need to ensure that you know the organisation is able to continue. Uh, I really recommend that being uh, communicating clearly, communicating often. We probably email families once every two days at the moment and they're quite yeah, I think that's that really important, Liam. Yeah. Um, well, I got some good advice from a consultant in the sector, Lisa, <laughs> um, whoever she is. But the but regular communication, making it clear, using using English language, the 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 um the desire to fall back on sort of bureaucraties and jargon is really strong in me, and I have to train myself out of it. But being really clear with families and being honest, and the feedback we've had has been that that's been really helpful. They've appreciated that's what happened. It means that when more more intense things happen, um, families are a bit more prepared for it, and they're more willing to sort of you know go along with us. Um, but Lisa, maybe what are some of the other things that we think services should be? Preparing Look, for I think at the that everyone needs to absolutely enhance their infection control procedures, get everyone to wash their hands before they come in the centre and then make sure everyone in the centre washes their hands regularly and wash down all your high-touch surfaces like your door handles, etc., etc., on a really regular basis throughout the day. Make it someone's job. Allocate one person to go around cleaning all those surfaces um the i think that 
everyone needs to do a risk assessment for the virus. I don't think I've seen quite a few you know, pandemic policies coming out, etc. If you've got a good infection control policy, this is no different than any other, you know, in like your infection control policy should be good enough that it covers how to deal with viruses. So I don't think you need to update that. I do think you need to do a risk assessment of everything that could possibly go wrong. You know, sit there with your, your managing group or with your staff or with your management committee or sit there with your co-owner, whoever it is, and work out what would could be the worst thing. What happens if half of your staff get sick? Can you still operate with half of that number and be within ratios? What happens if, you know, if... Um, you only have five children turning up. Will you still open at that stage or will you only open with a minimum number of 10? Think of do it exactly the same as you do a normal risk assessment. Think of every wild and possible scenario and put it down on paper. Work out your control measures now because it's a lot easier doing it in advance and then knowing what you're going to do. Communicate. So that's, with so that's the... For me, that's the scenario planning. Lisa, yeah, and that yeah. should be around every aspect of your organisation. Organisation, yep. And communicate with staff and families regularly. Why are staff still scared about if they're going to be paid or how long they're going to be paid for? They should know from your organisation what you can and can't do, you know, and for how long. They should know if they're going to be asked to take... Um, sick pay or if they're going to be asked to be take sick pay and holiday pay or if they're going to be asked to be taking sick pay, holiday pay and long service leave. Obviously, you've got to talk to unions and stuff about this, but you should also, you know, be thinking of giving them additional days because most educators, you know, use up all their sick pay in a minute of, you know, in just normal times. Think about giving them additional pay where you can afford it. Um, but they need to know that because the same thing with families, you know, what you don't know is the scary thing. Once you know something, then, you know, it's never as scary. I think everyone needs to contact their federal MP tomorrow to explain why education and care services need ongoing and high-level financial support. If they know that, then they can tell, you know, the minister, they can tell Scott Morrison, you need to get that message out. Definitely, them. definitely. Absolutely. And I think the only other thing we might add here, we, we were going to have a bit of a section on this, but we're running out of time, is uh, avoid myths on social media in particular about particular well, go things. Go off social media. You know, only if, use if, social media to give you maybe well, Twitter. That'll do. I think that'd be a great public health. Imagine yeah. if that was part get of the public of health responses. We're shutting yep. down Facebook. Get rid of it. Yeah. Just this is, I, I don't know how else to be clear about this. If, you, if your source for something is someone posted it in a Facebook group and the link is not an Australian government website, please ignore yeah. it and go and find out for yourselves. It is really damaging and it's making people scared and worried unnecessarily. Uh, do not get your information exactly. from them. My mother was relying on her um, some information from someone in the queue at the supermarket today. Well, oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> was it the chief medical officer by any chance? Or? No. no, it was Norman Swan. <laughs> if it was Norman Swan, I would have said, hold on, hang on to him and I'll come and see you. <laughs> Now, we're going to be absolute hypocrites now because having just had a big slam at Facebook and social media, we did put out the call for some questions on social media, which uh, we, well, I think we've... We, so acknowledging the hypocrisy is the only way we can move forward. So clear, honest communication. I'm practising what I preach. Um, we did get a few. Look, I think we probably answered some of these as we go through, but I'm going to maybe really quickly zoom through and combine a couple where I think the same question is being asked. Um, one of the questions we had was, uh, you know, if centres have to close, will governments still pay... Um, I like that um, this person's put CCB. We're still, still in the old word. I'm still getting the acronyms right. But we'll still play CCS if children are not attending. What does that mean for staff if centres close? I think the short answer is we don't, we don't know at the moment. The government have announced some financial assistance um, package. Uh, it'll be. I guess it'll. Be, we will need but to find out some more information. That'll be explained in the thing, won't it? For sure. 
Yeah, I think, look, we'll at least get either a repeat of the information that's currently out there. We may get more information. I imagine it's going to be something that's going to trickle out in dribs and drabs is where the government will fund as little as they can until they realise they have to fund a lot. Yeah. That's my kind of feeling. At the I moment. think I could they'll be announce something um, on it... Thursday, or even if it's just re-announcing yeah. what they've said and maybe taking off some of the conditions of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we had a couple of questions from around, I think this is a particular concern, not just in the early education sector, but in the wider community about casual uh, educators and how they'll be um, supported. Uh, what we can say is we can link to Services Australia, who, are, who, are, um, who have provided some advice around how casual employees can be supported. Um, but I think, you know, this is, this is going to be another bit of an, an, an unknown question about how particular individual services and organisations will support um, casual workers, but that might be something to raise with the particular organisations um, that you know the individuals are involved in. But that is obviously that that's a broad that's a concern that's broader than the sector. Obviously, that's that's a question that's being asked all around um, Australia and all kinds of businesses. Yeah, but certainly if you're a casual worker on and you know you work permanently with one or two services, I'd be talking to them about what they're going to do to help you. Absolutely. So I'm going to, the, uh, there's a couple of good questions, which I don't think we've really, which we sort of touched on maybe a little bit, but they're great questions and we're a little bit over time, but I want to get to these ones because I think they will, it means we're probably going to end on a slightly more positive note, but um, these are from a uh, long-term friend of the podcast, Sarah Louise, who's always you know, one of the first people questions. to comment when we put a new episode out. So these are really, I Leanne, so I am going to turn the first one to you because I thought you might like these. So Sarah asks, if we do close, how do leaders ensure their teams are staying connected and how do we maintain relationships with families when we aren't with them? What great, great questions. Better than any of the questions we came oh, yeah, up on the run sheet tonight. Yeah, questions. And I think well that, done, Sarah. Um, Lisa mentioned a few sort of ideas about, um, you know, working with families and, and thinking about those connections. Um, and I think, I, I guess from a leadership perspective, this is, this is all about we're all in this together, we're all doing this together and I would put that question to the teams themselves about how they want to stay connected and how they will depending on the circumstances. Are people going to be um, in their own homes or are we going to be working with reduced numbers of children in centres, all of those things. So I think it's going to depend on, on, those, um, on those circumstances. So I reckon do an action research project because I reckon that would this would be amazing in terms of. That's your answer to everything. It's not my answer Leanne. to everything, but I really <laughs> do think that this is a wonderful opportunity to learn about how we respond yeah. to really complex things, and complexity will not change. The you know we are going to be in complex times into the future. There's going to be so many more things that challenge us. So that's what yes, all right. That might be my answer for everything. Um, but I think uh, also <laughs> engage. Lisa and I's response to this situation seems to be teasing you, Leanne, which is I, unfair on you, but it's obviously right. making Lisa and I feel a lot better. still hammering through and getting through my, my, my things and saying, oh, don't be so silly. But um, no, I think that there's the, that there's, there's, uh, the action research. Thank you. I, I think uh, do some reading on complexity leadership theory. I've got some great references for you because this talks about emergence and disruption and those sorts of things because I think we have to look a little bit into the theory as well. But I, from, from my sense, this is, the, this is the new normal, right? So we need to reassure people but draw on the knowledge that we have within a team to make sure that people are staying connected. Work on something together. Think about some sort of project that you can do together at this time that is an optimistic project that is a great outcome. And one of the great things that everybody is doing is actually really thinking about how children are responding to this and how they can support families. So that's a wonderful shared project that everybody can have as well as being kind to each other. Always good advice, and I should have actually combined this. Sarah yeah, asked this yeah, question yeah. as well, and I've, I've, I've especially badly. But Leanne, I have to give you a chance to <laughs> this, answer this one. How do we lead from a place of hope and future thinking when things look dire, such as losing enrolments yeah. and not being able to order um, food from Coles? Which Sarah, I can, I, I feel you. We, sp I literally had an hour meeting today about Woolies deliveries not being able to be delivered and how we could deploy people to go and do shopping. Yeah. Deploy, deploy, 
deploy. So how do we lead from a place? Yeah, deploy, deploy them out. It's like a, it's a, it's like a military operation. But how do we lead from a place well, of hope and future thinking when things? Yeah, look well, dire? I do think that the place of hope and future thinking has this foundation in a kind of governance. Of- administration stuff so looking after those really key things like okay what does it look like if we lose enrollments what are the what are the financial impacts what are those things and doing that sort of planning because maybe I'm hoping that it won't be as dire as you know it would seem but if you kind of take yourself there and look at what the options are as Lisa was also suggesting then maybe if you don't have to go there at least you've got the plan for that so that's the foundation I think is the governance and the 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 elements of of supporting the the service and then I guess I've just talked about the things about being optimistic and working on something together and looking ahead for when the darn thing will be done which we don't know how long it'll be but um you know, knowing that everybody else is in the same place and early child, the early childhood profession and the early childhood sector are amazing. Their leadership is better than any other type of leadership in the world. So just rely on all of those wonderful early childhood leadership skills. Wonderful. That sounds like a wonderful moment to end uh, tonight's episode on. We've only gone slightly over my plan, which is not too bad. Um, I just want to do another reminder that if you're, depending on when you're listening to this, many of the things we talked about, particularly in the first half of the episode, may be out of date. Make sure you are checking what are probably going to be the longest show notes we've (laughs) ever published on the Early Education Show. But earlyeducationshow.com will include a whole bunch of links there. But I want to thank uh, both Lisa and Leanne for joining me tonight to talk through this um, yeah, com- what's a complex and difficult time, I think, for not just the early education sector. And, the, the and that big disclaimer, sorry, Liam, that, you know, this is a changing situation. We're not experts on the coronavirus, so make sure you, make sure you go to a reliable source. <laughs> <laughs> Almost anywhere is more reliable oh, on, than this. We're not that bad. <laughs> You have been listening to The Early Education Show. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.